We always, uh, in life, all of us at some point have to make important decisions. And important decisions often prompt us to go and seek counsel. We need counsel. Maybe it's in the buying of a home or uh, maybe there's a, a particular woman that as a young man you've got eyes for and you just want to make sure you're doing the right thing and what's important here. And, or maybe it's a job. Whatever the situation is, often we go and seek counsel. Why do we do that? Well, because we know that ultimately choices that we make set a trajectory for our lives. So you're talking with young people and teenagers particularly, and, and they make dumb choices. We all did. And there are consequences to those choices. And some, some dumb choices are just dumb, and there's not huge consequences. But some choices we make will set us on a trajectory in life that if we had only not made that choice, things would have been very different. And as I was thinking about choices, I couldn't help thinking of a time when Bob and I were wrestling with coming to the States and uh, getting training. That was a huge choice for us. It was a big decision. And when we chose to, to leave the state, to leave New Zealand, to come to the States uh, for study, we, we, in our hearts, I think we, we knew that we probably wouldn't be going back to New Zealand. We didn't know where we were going. We didn't know what that meant. But I remember getting on the plane and, and leaning across to her and saying, do you think we'll ever be back? And my wife said, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think so. Well, as you know, we did the training. We graduated, ended up in, in central California and we served the Lord there, and making that decision was monumental because I'm a Kiwi. And to stay in the States and to live in the States was not a very attractive proposition. I want you to know that. And particularly to go to a church where the previous pastor was under judgment and ended up in prison for life without parole because of first-degree murder, elder abuse, and embezzlement of funds. And I was going to a church that was no bigger than what's here in this group today. It was a monumental decision. We knew that that decision was going to set a trajectory for our lives where we would probably not go back to New Zealand and we would probably end up, our kids were all teenagers at the time. Nikki had started to date a young guy from the high school ministry at Grace Church, Grace Community Church. And we knew if she got married to an American, then she would want to become an American citizen. And, you know, you just start processing all this, start processing all this. Do we want to move back to New Zealand, be away from our children? How is that all going to work? So we sought counsel. Choices. You all have to make them. Some people don't like to make them. Some people want mom to make them for them all their lives. But we have to make choices. And our text before us today, as a final session here, is about choices. And so I've called this faith's choices. 
It's Hebrews 11. Take your Bibles, turn there, verses 23 through 29. And the man before us is Moses. And Moses, who made one choice that led to making other choices. As we look at his life, we see this choices he made going from one thing to the next to the next. And the context of this passage is, of course, faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. And here we find Moses. And it says in verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, that's not Moses' choice. That's their parents. We'll look at that as well. But look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, here's the choice, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Moses lived his life, most of his life, before the covenant of Mount Sinai, with all of its system of commandments and rituals. But, but even before and after Sinai, we see Moses here living by faith and not by sight. And no person in Scripture other than the Lord Jesus Christ illustrates the power of right decision-making better than Moses. His decisions were right because his faith was right. To the Jewish mind, Moses was associated with the commandments, the rituals, and the ceremonies, with all the, the religious requirements and the works of the Old Covenant. But the author of Hebrews here wants his Jewish readers to know that Moses was not just a man of the law, but rather a man of faith. And so Moses ranks as one of the most respected Old Testament figures. And therefore, to show that he lived by faith and not legalism to the law is one of the most powerful arguments possible to convince Jews that God's way has always been the way of faith. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Esau to Moses and on it goes. Faith makes choices either to accept or reject. Uh, people make choices either accept or reject. And the ones who accept Jesus Christ as Messiah are making a choice of faith. You can't prove this. You can argue from the scriptures. You can, you can show that the prophets prophesied. You can go through all of the, uh, all of the apologetic approaches to identifying Jesus as fulfilling all of these prophecies in the Old Testament, even down to, to minute details. And you can argue from that basis and say the evidence is in and it does clearly seem to, see that, seem to be that Jesus aligns here with what the prophets foretold the Messiah would be. 
As I mentioned earlier, I have a brother who's converted to Judaism, and the reason he converted is because not all the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. For example, is Jesus ruling and reigning from the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem over the nations of the earth? No. Now, if you're a preterist, you'll say yes. No, he's not. He's at his father's right hand. He's, he's seated at the father's right hand. That's not the throne of David. And he's waiting to return and to establish and fulfill the balance of those prophecies regarding his role as king over the nations of the earth. If you study eschatology, and I know there's probably varying views here, but let me just put this out there for you to think about. If you study eschatology, you will come to the conclusion, hopefully, that God is not done with Israel, that God has a purpose for and the future for the nation of Israel, and that the, the tribulation period, whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or some other trib, it doesn't matter. The point is that the tribulation period is a time of the wrath of God being poured out on the nations of the earth. And, and people often say to me, well, but Andy, the, the church has always gone through tribulation. So why should the church not go through the seven years of the great tribulation? Well, one, number one, because it is the great tribulation. Number two, because that identifies it from all other tribulation. And the identification is that all other tribulation comes from the evil one. But the tribulation of the great tribulation flows from the throne of God. It's a fairly clear distinction. And quite frankly, that's why Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, we're not destined to wrath. The wrath of God has already been poured out on Christ for us. If God was to pour out his wrath again on us, wouldn't that be like double jeopardy? Wouldn't that make God unjust? So this is the character of God issue. It's not just about your eschatology. It's about your theology proper. Well, in our text today, we're we, we going to discover here five choices that faith makes. Genuine faith makes these choices. And my goal in just wrapping this conference up is to say this, and I, I've, I've done different things at men's conferences, but I just really felt like this was a good theme for us to, to walk through these different lives and these different men to understand faith and to understand how as, as those who are called to live by faith, we should live. And I wanna finish up by asking you or walking through these choices and asking you at each point, is this the kind of choice you're making in your life? What we discover here as we get to uh, Hebrews, um, Hebrews 11 and verse 23 is that the author here moves on from the book of Genesis. And now he turns to Exodus and his focus is on Moses. And he begins his thoughts about Moses' faith by pointing to his parents. This all ties in with what I said in the last session. As a parent, your faith and the manifestation of that faith is critical to your children critical to your children. It won't save them, but it might be the means or part of the means that God uses to bring them to a knowledge of Christ, and it should be that means, to bring them to a knowledge of Christ so that God can 
draw them to himself by his spirit through the power of the gospel and save them. There's no other plan. There's no other path. You're a vital part of that, just as Moses' parents were. So let's start there in verse 23. And here's the first choice. We see Moses' parents, by faith, choosing to obey God rather than man. And he points out that the faith of his parents here, as it says, verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And the setting of that is that a new pharaoh had arisen in Egypt who did not know Joseph and who were threatened by, and it was threatened by this rapidly growing population, this nation of Israel that were multiplying. And, and he brought, in order to slow that down, he brought in really harsh labor as a means to subjugate and enslave them. And his plan to slow down the growth through slavery didn't work. It just, it just made these people all the more determined to grow and to multiply. And so he issued a commandment. And the commandment was to the Hebrew midwives to kill any male baby that, had been, that was born from, uh, from two years and under but as they were being born particularly, to, to kill them. Well, parents, Moses' parents disobeyed that command. They didn't follow the command of the Egyptian pharaoh. They didn't throw this newborn baby into the Nile River to drown or to be eaten by whatever there is in there to eat them. And so the population continued to grow. In Exodus 2, we learn that to protect this newborn son, Amram and Jochebed, Moses' parents, chose to hide him for three months. Now, if you've ever had a baby, that's not an easy task to do, especially when you live in a place where the walls are not soundproof. When they could hide him no longer, they took an extraordinary step and they put Moses in a waterproof basket and they placed it in the Nile River near the place where Pharaoh's daughter would bathe. The basket with Moses was soon found by the princess and she took him knowing he was a Hebrew child to be raised as her own child. Moses' sister Miriam was watching and persuaded the princess to get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the infant. Miriam, of course, got her mother, his mother, uh, who was then able to raise her own son almost as if he had been at home. Now, Abraham, Um, Amram and Jochebed made three choices here that were in line with God's purposes. Number one, they feared God more than man, and so they defied the king's edict. Number two, they chose life over death. Life over death. They were pro-lifers. And in that choice, they were willing to risk their own lives to preserve the life of this child. We've become such a selfish society, haven't we? We care about me. And you know, sometimes I counsel parents and I listen to them and I think, this is, you don't get it. Having a child's not about you. It's about fulfilling the command of God to go forth and multiply. It's about, it's about worship. It's about honoring the Lord. It's, it's, it's a reverential step. And you know, those of us who've gone through the process of seeing a child born, you know that it's, it's a phenomenal process. Like, it's, it's, it's spiritual. You know that. It's not, you recognize this isn't just, 
This isn't just man kind of connecting some wires together and, and, and putting in some, some mechanisms and cogs and making it. No, this is, this is a life, breathing, living. And you know it and you sense it. And, and I remember the first, my, my daughter's, my firstborn daughter's birth and I was just, I was just standing there, just, God, thank you, thank you. It drew me to worship God. Now remember, this couple didn't know the end of the story when they made their decision to preserve the life of Moses. But they made this decision trusting in God. And they, along with the rest of the family, could have been slaughtered because of what they did. They didn't just put their own individual lives at risk, but their entire family. They could have obeyed the Pharaoh, thrown Moses into the river to drown. They could have rationalized this situa on, on this situation by saying, well, what else could we have done? Or, or, or if we, we preserve his life and get caught, the whole family's gonna be killed. We could all die. They could have said, you know, casting him away to die is, is, is the lesser of two evils. Or they could have thought in their minds, if we keep him alive and get caught, then maybe if we don't die, we'll, we'll then we'll... we'll will end up being in slavery, or he, he will be, end up in slavery. If we're killed, he'll end up in slavery. Or they could have said, you know what? Romans 13, wasn't around at the time, but Romans 13, we should submit to the governing authorities. They could have said that. But they didn't think that way. All of those things thoughts we have and we have to wrestle with and choices we make. They chose to believe this child was a gift from God and that they had a divine mandate to be good stewards of this baby's life. They made that choice. Now, I know you're not ignorant to the fact that many children are born with all kinds of deformities and issues but we live in a culture that says if we can identify that deformity before the child comes out of the womb, then we can remove the child and you won't have to live your life dealing with Down syndrome. You name it. Thirdly, they recognize this child as fulfilling the purposes of the Lord. The phrase in this verse says they saw he was a beautiful child. <laughs> Every parent thinks their children are beautiful, even the ugly child, children that are born. Every child looks in them and sees beauty there. We all think our children are gorgeous. And the word beautiful here means something quite different. It means acceptable to God. Not beautiful to the natural eye, but beautiful in the sense of, Lord, this is your child. In Stephen's sermon before the Sanhedrin, he points out that Moses was lovely in the sight of God. It's the idea. He was lovely in the sight of God. He was a gift from the Lord. And faith reveres God and His purposes over what is expedient to us as individuals. These parents had no idea that such a choice would preserve the life of a man God had chosen from eternity past, 
to be Israel's deliverer from Egypt. And that through Moses would come the law, the first five books of the Bible. And that this man would be a beautiful prefiguring of the person and work of Christ and his deliverance ministry. Again, if you're a parent here, treasure your children as gifts of grace. Ask God to make your children beautiful to him. Not to you, to him. As you do your part to protect them from the evil one and prayerfully raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, that's Moses' parents' faith. They chose to obey God rather than men. Secondly, we see in verse 24 through 26 that faith chooses to identify with God rather than Moses. And the author points out three ways that Moses, as he grew into young manhood, chose to identify with God rather than man. And that is, firstly, he rejected worldly prestige. So skipping forward from his infancy, the author now points out that by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. For 40 years, Moses had been a prince of Egypt, the wealthiest, most cultured, advanced society of the day. He was highly educated and skilled, and as well as being part of the royal court. But again, Stephen in Acts 7 reminds us of the prestige that he had. He says this, he says, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power in words and deeds. Yeah, this is the guy that says, I, I, I don't know how to speak. He had prestige. There was a manner about this man. There was a strength about this man. And yet he came to a crossroads where he had to make some choices in life. And by faith, to, he made the choice to no longer identify himself as a son of Pharaoh's daughter, but instead chose to be identified with God's covenant people who had the lowliest of positions as slaves. If you had a choice and you learnt that your parentage, let's say you were adopted and you were living in a, in a mansion and you found out that your parentage uh, belonged to the people that lived in the trailer park down the road. What choice would you make? That's the kind of choice he made. But he made it by faith. It wasn't just physical in that sense. He understood, no doubt, by the age of 40, that this was the covenant people of God. His mother had no doubt taught him well in his young life. He understood the Scriptures that they had, the, the, the teachings of the revelations of God and what had come through Abraham and, and the different portions of, of God's revelation to man to that point. But where, where did this identity and devotion come from? Well, it came from his mom and it came from his understanding of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promises of God. And so by faith, he chose to leave behind his earthly identity and the honor afforded to him as a member of the royal household with all its guarantees of absolute loyalty. And instead, he chose to be identified with a people who at that stage were rejected, rejected by the nations of the world. Now, this decision would not have gone well, down well in Pharaoh's house. Imagine the hurt feelings, the misunderstandings that must have swept over Pharaoh's daughter and the outrage of Pharaoh on hearing about this, Moses, what an ungrateful wretch. After all that we've done for him, 
You can just hear that echoing through the building. Listen, when you choose to follow Christ by faith, a Christ whom the world rejects, it may involve you having to walk away from an education and a comfortable lifestyle that your family would love to provide for you. It just may involve that. You may well suffer the pain of alienation and at the very least, you may have to deal with the fact that none of your family who are unbelievers actually understand what you're doing. And so that you're this, this, this guy that no one understands. But notice in verse 25, there's a second way Moses identifies with God. He not only rejected worldly prestige, but he rejected worldly pleasure. Choosing, verse 25 says, rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. These are the issues, by the way, I think as teenagers we face, is it not? I mean, we have this indwelling principle of sin, and Moses had this as well, but he chose rather to enjoy the ill treatment with the people of God. Faith chooses pain and suffering over pleasure and materialism. As a family member of the royal court, Moses could have had anything he wanted to have, anything. He could have chosen to satisfy any fleshly desire and would have been commended for that. He could drink the best wine, eat the most lovely food, have for himself the most beautiful woman, be dressed in designer clothing. He could have amassed the, a, a huge material wealth of goods around himself. All of these things were his. They were at his fingertips. But when Moses chose to obey God by faith, he instantly lost it all. And coming to Christ really is a call to that, isn't it? You know, often I say to people who are showing an interest in the gospel, what's your most precious and treasured, what's the most treasured thing you have in life? could be a girlfriend, it could be a car, it could be the job or the career. And then I ask this question, are you willing to give that up for Christ? Would you be willing to forsake that? And it's not that God would take those things away necessarily. But the heart issue is, are you willing to forsake the pleasures of this world? As I said, it's not, it's not that it's inherently sinful to enjoy a position of honor and, and to enjoy some comforts. We just had a marvelous meal together and, and I enjoyed it very much. Thank you, Lord. But would I have been willing to give up that meal to share the gospel with someone? These are choices we make. Joseph enjoyed all of these things while he followed God, but when God called Moses to give it up, and lead Israel out of bondage, at that point, would, it would have been sin for Moses to have continued living as he was. Also, the Bible does not deny that sin does bring passing pleasure. So many people don't get that. It's, it's strange because this is the reason we sin. There's pleasure in sin, but it's only for a season. Now, if Moses didn't give this th these things up, and if we don't give them up, then the temptation is there for us and it's only a matter of time and we'll go down the pathway of sowing to the flesh. I have uh, 
it's one of the, the challenges that I've, I've faced in evangelicalism here in the States, and I think it's the same in New Zealand. Maybe I just didn't see it as strongly. I remember a, a mom who came, um, wanted some counsel for, uh, for her family, and she came, sat down, and she broke down in tears, and she shared how her 17-year-old son, who was in, in high school, um, had suicidal thoughts and had been, you know, thinking of committing suicide, and that she had discovered this not from her son, but through the school counselor. And she was really grieved about that. Why hadn't her son come to her and shared what was on his heart? And she was kind of broken over this. And so I began to ask her questions about the, the, the home life. And dad was a policeman, and the home was a loving home. Um, dad could be strong, yes, but it was a loving home. And, and uh, she assured me that their son, they had done everything they could to love him. And she began to explain. I said, can you explain what that looked like as, as he was growing up? And she said, well, we always told him he was a good kid. We, we built up his self-esteem at every point we possibly could. He was valedictorian in this class, and he was the lead in the, in, in the football team at, at the high school, and he was the team captain, and he was always uh, you know, rising up and, and kind of the guy that stood out amongst his peers. I said, was there anything else you taught him? Was there anything else you encouraged him in? Well, isn't that enough that someone grows up knowing they're loved and that they have a good self-esteem? And I said, did you ever teach him about the sovereignty of God? It's the family that's been in church all their life. She leaned back in her chair and she said, Pastor, she said, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not really a Bible student and I... I don't know a lot about the sovereignty of God. Can you explain? No knowledge of the sovereignty of God. I asked a second question. I said, Could, is, it, is, there, is there a possibility that you took some time to teach him about indwelling sin, the principle of indwelling sin? She said, what's that? Anyway, discovered that this guy had always been number one always been in control, always life went his way. If he fell over, he landed on his feet. And his parents had propped him up in every turn, given him every opportunity, every position, and then he got a girlfriend. And the relationship started to go too far, too fast, and, and the lust of the flesh kicked in. And the girlfriend went to her parents, and they were in the church as well, and her parents said to the girlfriend, Dump him. Stop this relationship now. So she did. The very next day, he goes to high school, and for some reason that only we'll learn about in the future in heaven, that boy got bullied by four boys. Maybe he just came across a little arrogant. I don't know. He got bullied. Two incidents back to back where he, he had no control of the outcome. He lost what he thought he was in control of. And because of that, his answer was, I'm going to kill my life. I'm going to kill myself. We need to teach our children what the battle is. 
The Bible does not deny that sin brings passing pleasure, but the Bible does teach that ultimately those who sin are slaves to sin and that the outworking of sin is death. We know this. And just like Moses had chosen the pathway of suffering, so too we likewise must choose a pathway of suffering. And until you understand that as a young man or a young woman or an older man, until you understand that's the pathway, you are in a battle against the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. That's where we fight the battle. Not to mention the doctrines of demons and all the other pressures, but that's internal. And being a Christian and coming to Christ doesn't alleviate you from this, this principle of sin. It's still at work. What it, what it means to be a Christian is that we have another principle operating in us that's much more powerful than the principle of sin and death. And that's the principle of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. We're not under this this principle that's pulling us down with nothing to come against it. I liken the Christian life to a 747 sitting on the end of the runway. And you think about this thing, 300 and something tons of material, and it's gonna go down that runway. And the principle of gravity is what's holding it to the ground. And as it's roaring down the runway, there's another principle that begins to take over. It's the principle of aerodynamics. And that principle comes over the wings, the wind, and it begins to lift that plane. And as long as there's thrust, as long as those engines are roaring and that plane's moving at a particular speed, the air rushing over the winds will lift that plane up and above the principle of gravity. But if you turn the engines off, it's all over. Gravity kicks in. Down you come. It's not that gravity ever switched off. And it's the same for us as believers. We will live this life with the principle of sin and death in us until the day we leave this mortal body. And so we must crucify the flesh daily. We must be willing to reject worldly pleasures. We must be willing to reject prestige. Thirdly, we must be willing to reject worldly rewards. Considering the reproach of Egypt, greater rich, uh, reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. What? Have you ever stopped and thought about that? Considering the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And there's this little phrase for he's looking for a reward. Again, this word considering here speaks of carefully thinking this through and it brings things into focus and it explains what's behind the decisions Moses is making. He weighed in the scales what Egypt had to offer him against what God through Christ had to offer and after weighing everything out, he chose to suffer the world's reproach because he had come to a right understanding of what constitutes true wealth. The world has no no time and it sees no value in the things of God, the promises of God or of Christ or the Messiah. However, for Moses, true wealth, true value was measured by the eternal and not the temporal. And, and some of this is repetitive, but I want it to be repetitive. I wanted these messages to just drive these things home so that this week as you go out into the workplace, as you go about your life, that you're constantly thinking, am I being driven by a temporal principle or an eternal principle? Am I walking here by faith and the power of the Spirit of God or am I following the lust of my flesh? Verse 
And you make choices every day to do one or the other. Moses renounced the world's power, the world's honor, and the world's prestige for the sake of knowing God. That reminds me of another guy. Philippians chapter three. You know the passage well. Paul says in verse seven, whatever things were gained to me, these things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What did he count as loss? He counted as loss his position as a Jew. He counted as loss his status as, uh, as one in the Jewish nation from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, he counted as loss his religious Status as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You just go, look, he said, all of that stuff, I've counted as dung, as scubalon. He renounced it all to know Christ and the power of the resurrection. It's no different. What's the application? Well, worldly prestige, pleasures, rewards, these are all to be considered as trash when compared with the glories that we will share in with Christ and even do share in with Christ in the here and the now as Christians. Even in the light of this, Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he wrote, momentary light, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all Comparison. In other words, he's saying, if you hold on to the things that are eternal, there's nothing you can compare that treasure with. What are you holding on to? What are you choosing? Thirdly, faith chooses to follow God rather than what the circumstances dictate. It says in verse 27, by faith he left Egypt not fearing, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Stunning. The author is now fast forwarded in Moses' life. Moses had fled from Egypt after he killed, killed an Egyptian, provoked, provoked by an Egyptian who was beating one of the Israelite slaves. And Moses got in the mix and killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand, which ultimately brought upon him the wrath of Pharaoh. And he had made his decision to identify with God's people and out of fear of Pharaoh's wrath, at that point, he flees to Midian where he will spend 40 years in the school of life, shepherding sheep and goats. And the author now skips that part, that major part of his life, and takes us to the time that Moses now, having met God in the burning bush, has come back to Egypt and now is commanding another Pharaoh to let God's people go. And after 10 supernatural plagues, following Pharaoh's constant rejection of God's commands through Moses, he finally relents, calls Moses and Aaron and tells them, rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said and go and bless me as you go. And the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will all be dead. Now, the sons of Pharaoh, 
the sons of Israel, sorry, had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they left them have they let them have their request, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. Again, like Moses, our faith will bring us into opposition to powerful forces and even to authorities at times. And yet this same faith is what enables us to follow God without fear as we watch our opposition overcome, be overcome by focusing our eyes on, of faith on the one who is unseen. I spent two years of my life being persecuted and threatened, having my family's, my wife's life threatened, my family's life threatened. A gentleman had decided, having been exposed as a serial adulterer, that he wanted to destroy me. And he spent, he left his job and he spent two years to do that. He said, I'm going I'm to destroy you, you and I'm going to destroy your ministry. And I would like to say I was like Moses, bold and fearless. <laughs> I wasn't. He was a master manipulator, trained in the, in the equivalent to the Marines in New Zealand. He was trained to enter into terrorist cells and to tear them apart from inside out. He took that training and he applied it to the church and he destroyed the church. People were confused. They didn't know where to stand. He was master. It was so bad that we ended up having to get um, the New Zealand police force involved to try and figure out where all these threats were coming from. But in the process of that, fear began to grow in my heart. And I got crippled. I, I understand crippling fear. And there was a day, there was a two-week period in my life where I wouldn't leave the house. And there was one day where the fear was so so strong that I couldn't get out of bed. And I remember my wife saying to me, I just got caught up in all this stuff trying to figure it out. And she said, honey, you've just got to trust God. The only prayer I could pray was Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You know the rest of the psalm. And what broke that fear for me was the verse that says, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. And I got out of bed and I said, Lord, I'm gonna trust you. And rather than driving me away from the ministry and from the Lord, God used that man in my life, that evil man, to strengthen me. And I'm so thankful. There's, not, there's no way in the world that I would be in the ministry I'm in, even right now, if it was not for the fact 
that I learned to trust the Lord in the weakest point of my life and to see God sustain me, keep me, protect me, and lead me forward. And so I, can, I thank God for that trial. Of course, at the time, I didn't. <laughs> I mean, this is reality. We need, a, we need to have a faith that will not only bring us into opposition to powerful forces and authorities, but help us to walk through those oppositions as though they're not even there. And this brings us to the next choice. Faith chooses. Faith chooses to trust God's provision rather than man's provision. For Moses, we see that faith meant he could endure, uh, he, that he could endure the wrath of a worldly superpower. But even more important, his faith meant he was delivered from divine wrath and judgment. By faith, it says he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. At the culmination of the plagues, God gave Moses instructions on observing what we know as the Passover, Exodus 12. At the heart of that celebration was the sacrifice of an unblemished male lamb. Its blood was to be smeared on the doorposts and the lintel of every home in Israel. And God warned that he, that he would come through that land on that night with a death angel and kill every firstborn male in the homes that did not have blood sprinkled on the doorposts. The necessity of this Passover reveals to, to us that the wrath of God was not just against Egypt, but against all of the earth, Israel as well. And that the only way to be delivered was to be placed, to place oneself under the blood and the covering of the blood of the Lamb. Being an Israelite by birth would not have spared you if you were a first, firstborn, if you did not take that lamb and kill it. Growing up in a Christian home is not gonna spare you from the wrath of God. You need to come under the blood of the Lamb while Moses' faith is mentioned in 11.28, his faith did not cover all of the Jewish homes. Each home had to apply the blood as God had commanded or they would suffer the consequences. Romans 3.23 states, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person's born alienated from God. Both pagan Gentiles and religious Jews are by nature children of wrath. And whether we recognize it or not, we are born hostile to God. And in that condition, we are a heartbeat one heartbeat away from incurring eternal judgment. The blood of this Passover lamb then became a type pointing to the blood of Christ whose death would be the substitutionary death to cover us from the death we deserved, the judgment we deserved. And so faith lays hold Faith lays hold of the protection and the provision of God in Christ who alone can atone for sin and appease his wrath. As John says in 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for also for the whole world. In other words, this offer is extended to every nation of the world, to both Jew and to Gentile. We're not universalists. We don't believe he's saying there that Christ made peace for everyone in the world, like every individual. We're just saying, John's saying Christ made peace for the whole world, not just the Jews. So the blood covered 
Jews that night, but you know, the blood also covered Egyptians. It was a mixed multitude that left Egypt. Isn't that crazy? I never knew that for years. When I saw that, I thought, oh, so the grace of God was extended in exactly the same way, and the Old Testament is extended in our day and age. Christ's sacrifice extends to all who by faith embrace the gospel and repent of their sin. And 1 John 14 says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so men, may we by faith today choose those provisions. Well, lastly, faith chooses to trust God's promises over man's promises. Faith chooses to identify with God, to follow God, to trust in his protection, but it also chooses, and I'm right back where I started, to be confident in God's promised deliverance. Look at that last section. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they, were, when they attempted it, were drowned. When the Israelites got to the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his army came after them to destroy them and they enclosed them from behind. There was no escape. And for all they could see is that they were trapped and, 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 and they come to Moses and they'd lost heart and they complained, is it, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What's Moses' respond to that? response to that? It's a, it's a response of faith. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. <laughs> That's the hard one, right? They trusted God, and by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing on dry ground. And when we look to God in this way to save us, the Bible says He will. You know, at 13 years of age, I was in a church where, you know, there were certain things you had to do, and one of those was you had to pray the sinner's prayer. And, and I remember the night that I prayed the sinner's prayer, and uh, many times, but one particular night I remember. But here's what I was doing in the sinner's prayer. I was saying, God, listen, look at what I've done. I've prayed the sinner's prayer. And I remember, I remember praying this to God. Uh, write my name in the Lamb's book of life. That's a direct command to God. Here's a 13-year-old commanding God to write my name in the Lamb's book of life. Why was I commanding that? Well, because I just sat through a, a message on hell. And I don't want to go to hell. And, and the guy finished the message saying, if your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, then you're headed for hell. So I'm commanding God. Did that save me? No, not at all. Didn't change anything. Because I hadn't yet submitted and surrendered and trusted in God. Prayer isn't what saves us. God saves us. And God's not looking for a, a beautiful little sweet four-point prayer. God's looking for a broken and contrite heart over sin. That's what he's looking for. The Egyptians, on the other hand, they, they trusted in their own strength to deliver them. And when they attempted the same thing, they drowned. Let that be a warning to us. Examine your faith. Ask God to attest and examine you to see if indeed you're trusting in the one who can save you rather than trusting in a prayer you prayed 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago, two days ago. By the way, I didn't get saved until five years later. Five years later, I bent the knee and I said, God, I give in, I surrender. That was my saving prayer. I'm yours. 
do with me as you so choose. So, five choices. We need to choose by faith to obey, to identify, to follow God, to trust his protection, and to be confident in his deliverance. And Satan will do everything he can to set another pathway before you. Don't go down that path. There's only one way, and it's through the narrow gate. And Jesus is that gate. And to get through that narrow gate, you have to leave every other path behind. And so the opposite of choosing God's way is always choosing Satan's way. It's not believing God, to not believe God and to, and to accept his promises and walk in them is to believe Satan and accept his promises and walk in them. Some people say, you know, that, that, that broad gate that leads to hell, it's got a big sign, hell, on it. No, it doesn't. The broad gate that leads to hell has a sign that says heaven, enter here. Satan is a deceiver. He is a liar. He wants you to believe that you can walk on a broad road that will take you right into the glories of heaven but it won't. It absolutely won't. It's the narrow way that leads to life eternal. It's the way of Christ. We need to believe and choose him over and above the father of lies. I mean, I hope this has been helpful. I hope you've been encouraged to think about faith, living out your faith in a practical, real, and tangible way. May God encourage you. If you're coming tomorrow, um, I'm going to look at Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 4, and the race of faith. And we'll finish up there. It'll be a great time as we look at the, the different aspects of what it means to run with perseverance or endurance, the race that's set before us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for their, their willingness even to listen. What a blessing. And I'm encouraged by that for them. Father, would you grow us? You are the giver of life. You are the giver of faith. And God, we need faith. We need to trust you more. We need to lean on you more. We need to learn the lessons that Moses learned and Abraham learned and Isaac learned and Jacob learned. Father, we need to learn the lessons that Joseph learned. We need to be men of faith. And so God, I pray that you would raise up even out of this group men who will make choices, good choices, to follow you in the days that lie ahead. And even though the path may be difficult and narrow, God, I pray that they would keep their eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of their faith. And so, God, we rest in you, we trust in you, and we look to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless.